Welcome back to Canberra Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell. And today is episode 178 of the podcast, and I'm joined by Rob Henderson. Rob is a US Air Force veteran with a PhD in social psychology from the University of Cambridge and an upcoming author. Rob's turbulent upbringing and the time that he spent in the military before studying at Yale gives him a pretty unique perspective on all things social class, beliefs, human nature, and social psychology. I've been a huge admirer of Rob's written work, both long and short form, since I first heard him interviewed back in early 2020. And I know that you're going to find this episode as fascinating as I did. In particular, you can expect to hear about how luxury beliefs have replaced luxury items as a means of showcasing status, how virtue signaling has a dark side, why some modern views on relationship structure and marriage fly in the face of all the data, and how shifting the language that we experience actually feels to deal with the problems that really matter. I suspect you're going to enjoy this conversation and be as intellectually stimulated as I was during it. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please do let me know at call.cambro on Instagram, or you can join my email list, which will be linked in the show notes, and email me direct. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by the Young Entrepreneur Society, or YES for short. The Young Entrepreneur Society is the UK's most exclusive entrepreneur community where you can learn to create financial success in any industry you choose to through YES's Millionaire Coaching Network, Private Members Club, and Online Business Academy. The range of education and support within the academy is absolutely huge, including courses on sales and negotiation techniques, life mastery and mindset, social media marketing, property 101, and 100k fast track every single month new courses are being added including on e-commerce affiliate marketing and even on fitness and there may or may not be a course on podcasting success coming very soon too as a podcast listener you can get up to 50 percent off the cost of access to the yes academy or to yes light if you're looking to start a business or you've already got one that you need to accelerate then yes is the place for you I've been behind the scenes as a member now since January and I've benefited massively from courses on particular negotiation and millionaire networking as well as the Yes Members group chat where I'm surrounded by like-minded aspirational people and that cannot be undervalued. You can get access to Yes for the cost of less than a cup of coffee per week and use the code CAMBRO or CAMBROLITE at the link in the show notes which is bit.ly forward slash yes cambro and that'll be linked in the show notes for you to get involved this was a conversation i was extremely excited for it took me a lot to prepare for in terms of intellectually because rob is an extremely clear guy and i'm extremely excited to bring this episode to your ears and i really hope you all enjoy it the music's going to play and you can hear from myself and rob henderson Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Colin. Great to be here. And when I was getting prepared for this, I read in your bio that you were once described as self-made by the New York Times. I think that's well justified. But for those that aren't aware of your story, why would you be classified as a, a self-made man, Rob? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, well, okay. So so self-made... Well, so currently I'm... Uh, you know, I just finished up a PhD here at Cambridge. Uh I did my doctorate in psychology. And before this, I did a bachelor's in psychology at Yale. Uh, but before I entered these universities and got these degrees, my life was a lot different. So to just back you know, way, way up and just give you the sort of Cliff Notes version, I was born uh, in Los Angeles, uh, you know, never knew my father. My mom 
was addicted to drugs and was unable to care for me. So I spent um, you know, my, my childhood living in different foster homes in, in LA and all around California. Um, barely graduated high school, got terrible grades, was just a very unfocused student, got into a lot of trouble. Um, when I was 17, right after I graduated high school, I enlisted in the military. It was just a sort of a last ditch, sort of desperate attempt to flee uh, the sort of disorder and chaos of of my uh, my youth. And yeah, I spent a few years in the Air Force, uh, lived in different countries, stationed in Germany and deployed a few times to the Middle East and you know, kind of matured and refocused and got my life on track, went to Yale uh, on the GI Bill for undergrad and ended up here in Cambridge. Uh, and I'm still living here. Uh, so that's sort of the the, the brief version. And yeah, in the interim, at some point, this was right before I started at Yale, when I was actually uncertain whether I would get into any of the universities I applied for, uh, the universe, uh, the, the, the New York Times did, uh, did this little piece on, you know, these, these uh, students from, you know, what uh, non-traditional sort of hard, you know, uh, scrappy backgrounds who were trying to get into college. And uh, yeah, they, they interviewed me for that piece. And um yeah, they, you know, just before I even got into college, they called me self-made. So that was that was very kind of them. That was back when the New York Times was, I don't know, in my opinion, it was a bit more, a bit more of a sane outlet than what they've what they've become. But uh, some, they still put out some some good work. So that's the that's the short version. Yes, Rob, and it, it's funny. Was was that one of the first times that you'd articulated your story to to anyone, sort of front to back, when you spoke to New York Times? That was the first time publicly. So uh, they ran this uh, this contest there was a, a contest that i that they ran for people who were applying to college they wanted college essays about um uh class class and money something like that uh you know basically like i said students from sort of low-income impoverished backgrounds who are applying to college i submitted my essay in this contest and they ran it and uh yeah that was the first time that i you know revealed my uh life uh, in a very sort of public way and I remember being nervous about it, about like, you know, it's one thing for, you know, a, a group of college uh, administrators and admissions committees to read this thing, but to have like, you know, just strangers read this was, um, yeah, it was a bit concerning, but it ended up being the right choice, I think. Uh, and then later, uh, I ended up writing a bit more about my life and how it informs a lot of my perspectives around, you know, psychology and uh, my critiques of culture and society and my observations and so forth. Uh, and yeah, that helped me to, to land this, this book deal. So I have a book coming out next year, but it also helped me to sort of launch my, my newsletter and my Substack, uh, which has been doing pretty well too. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, an interesting ride. I mean, I, I really just originally wanted to sort of get out of where I grew up and be a successful person. I didn't even know what that meant when I was 17, when I left, I just knew that I did, didn't want to stay on the track that I was on. And uh, yeah, never, never really expected things to end up the way that they have. The track that you're on during your childhood, Rob, really turbulent, lots of different change. But when you've articulated that to the admissions at the college and then to New York Times, you probably become more aware of how potentially unusual it is versus some of your peers that are going to college. What was that like? Yeah, well, it really became apparent to me through of smaller interactions with some of the other students so when i arrived at yale for example i mean i knew you know it's 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 not a surprise you know a lot of the students at these kind of ivy league universities they come from rich backgrounds i knew there was going to be this sort of economic class difference where you know i grew up 
you know, poor slash working class. And a lot of these, these people came from, you know, there's more students at Yale from the top 1% of the income scale than from the entire bottom 60%. And so uh, I was aware of that. But then, you know, smaller class, class differences seem to emerge, not related to economic class, but more to social class, sort of how they were brought up, sort of the, the cultural references they knew, and then how their families were formed, too. I noticed that, too, that you know, for me, and, you know, I had five close friends in high school, and none of us were raised by both of our birth parents. You know, I was raised in foster homes, I had friends raised by single moms, one was raised by a single dad, another one was raised by his grandma, because his mom had been addicted to drugs, and his dad had gone to prison. And so that was like the norm where I grew up in California. Uh, and then I found out that just just about every student I, I ran into uh, at Yale were raised by both of their birth parents. And, you know, that was a sort of a stark difference that, oh, it's not just that they have more money, but their like whole entire early life experience was so much different from mine. Um, so, so yeah, that, that was definitely something that stood out. Prior to yielding, how much do you think the military shaped you? Because if you look at your childhood, you said you barely scraped through high school. There was no indicator that you were going to end up at Yale, an author as you, or about to be a published author as well. Like some of my guests that I speak to, maybe they're massive for the entrepreneurial space. They'll have done something at school that you're like, right, okay, I can see this like inner flair within you, but you're saying academically you weren't engaged, whereas now you are kind of at the peak of it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was always a curious kid, but um, I didn't like authority. I was suspicious of you know, rules. And I just, I, I, I was, um, just, yeah, I, I, I thought that a lot of these, these structures were, were unnecessary. I preferred getting into trouble with my friends. You know, I was, I, I, you know, this is something that happens. I mean, if you look at like a lot of research in developmental psychology, Joyce Benenson, she's a psychologist wrote this great book called Warriors and Warriors. Uh, in that book, she notes how for young boys, when there's very little uh, adult oversight or supervision at home, um, you know, from parents or from caretakers, they tend to cluster together. And that becomes like their source of social support and stability and, you know, how they sort of uh, shape their identities. And, you know, in like very extreme cases, this can take the form of like gangs and violence and that kind of thing. Or it can take, you know, like a slightly more maybe mild forms of like, you know, uh, kids joining like skateboarding crews or sports or, uh, you know, JROTC, like these sort of like, um, you know, high school versions of, of like uh, military preparation, those things. So, you know, for me, it was yeah, just me hanging out with like my other kind of aimless, uh, troublemaking friends. And none of us really had a serious interest in, in school. And it was just like that sort of young, young boy thing of like school, stupid, you know, oh, you care about grades like that's that's ridiculous. Like, who cares? like it was like, oh, get, you know, laughing about, you know, not doing your homework. Like that was very much the sort of mindset that I was in. But I still found the, the material of class interesting. Like I would read the textbooks. Um, I would practice the math exercises and I'd go to the school library sometimes and read books that interested me. So you know, there was that sort of intellectual uh, drive. And some of my teachers could recognize that too. Uh, but, you know, whenever they encouraged me to actually like focus and actually do the work. Um, yeah, I just I just couldn't bring myself to do There's it. There's an element of pulling back because of its authority, like who the message comes from rather than the, yeah. like, and the messenger being the problem, not the message. That's yeah, that was that's well put. Yeah, yeah, just the, the they represented authority or structure or something. And I just didn't I didn't uh, trust it. I didn't think that it was. Um, yeah, I didn't take it seriously. I've heard you say that you read quite 
harrowing or challenging life stories to try and contextualize what you were going through during your childhood? I think you said that you'd read Richard Wright, um, Black Boy, for example. So when I was listening to you speak about that, I was thinking, well, that is a, a man that, or a boy that is intellectually engaged with a text that is probably beyond what he's performing like in his academic classes. Yeah, yeah, I read uh, quite a few memoirs when I was in uh, middle school and high school, and even in my my young adulthood. Like I remember, I read uh, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Victor Frankl shortly after I'd uh, I had enlisted. I was probably I don't know eighteen or nineteen when I read that one. But yeah, I mean, I I, I read these books, and they there was something um, maybe soothing about it to read people who had harder lives than me. You know, because my you know my life wasn't particularly um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't easy. And I knew that there was something wrong, or something that, yeah, I, I could just sense that, the like the people around me, they were unhappy, the guys that I, I was hanging out with. And, you know, I, I had I worked too. So I worked as a dishwasher, I worked as a bagger at a grocery store, I worked with like older guys, too, in their early to mid 20s. And I could tell they there was they felt that something was was missing from their, you know, they felt yeah, that their lives were not on the right track, either. Um, and then when I read these books with guys who had, you know, even more brutal lives than me, um, yeah, to just know that they could rise above it somehow, that they could write about it in an interesting and articulate way to maybe draw some hard won lessons from their experiences. Um, yeah, there was something about that that was really appealing to me. And I probably couldn't have expressed this to you. You know, when I was 17 years old, if you had asked me, why are you reading this? I don't think I would have even been able to give you a, a, a what an interesting answer it would have just been like oh just you know i i don't know i don't know why but it's just interesting to it's me. a cool book yeah yeah it's a cool book or this guy's cool or there's some funny you know like i mean richard richard wright's book and and yeah like you know, just yeah there's just um yeah there's something there was something thrilling about it too to to read about these you know people who had such different lives than what i was i was experiencing it's interesting what we're drawn towards as kids and we were speaking before we hit record about like me kind of starting the podcast as my as my side project during the pandemic when I had had more time and as a kid I was very keen to be a sports journalist and I think mm. the modern equivalent of writing match reports and doing interviews for newspapers is probably the audio version mm. which is now a podcast where you interview people and you do um and like you distill down information and you present it in this format so it's interesting that you as a kid were reading these memoirs about challenging lives and then you're going to be writing a book through that lens, which, albeit maybe not on the same level as um, Black Boy in terms of the story, there's elements of the struggle and the challenge and then moving forward and, and pushing towards the the where, where you've got to now. Yeah, there's a, I, I remember a, a while back I read um, uh, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, and she uh, notes that one of the ways you can sort of you know, if, if you're sort of adrift and you don't know what you want to do for a career or what you want to do in your life, one of the things you can look at is uh, what you were interested in when you were a kid. You know, if you like to draw when you were a kid, then maybe you were meant to be an artist. If you like to, you know, bang on pots and pans in the kitchen, maybe you should be a musician or a drummer. And if you like to, to write or to give speeches or to tell jokes, you know, a lot of those early inclinations uh, can can be useful indicators of, of what you truly enjoy doing, right? Because when you're a kid and you're just sort of free and you're uninhibited and, you know, you don't yet have the sort of socialization and the peer pressure and the fear of judgment and anxiety and all those things that sort of come with puberty and with, with growing up. Um, you know, that's, those are, those are sort of, uh, yeah, re reveal something about you that you may uh, really uh, uh, take pleasure in. 
Agreed. No, I'll, I'll definitely bookmark that book to to, to to add it to the reading list. But mm. you said as a kid, you definitely weren't drawn to the military, but you joined the Air Force as a, as a, a way of kind of getting out of California. How important was the military for you? Well, I wouldn't say that I was um, like unopposed. I just felt like indifferent or neutral to it. I mean, it was a, yeah. So, so I, I had, um, there were two older guys, older males in my life who recommended it. So one was a his, history teacher that I had in high school. And he was like, you know, he was, yeah, he was, he was an interesting teacher. I liked his way of teaching. He was like funny. He was, he was charismatic. He wasn't like overbearing or gruff or anything like, you know, he sort of talked to us uh, as, you know, as if we were human beings rather than these sort of annoyances like some other teachers, you know, would. Um, and yeah, he he recommended it to me and he had been in the Air Force, you know, before he became a teacher. And then there was, uh, so, so then my, my senior year of high school, the final year in high school, I lived with my friend, his, his dad, um, and his dad had been in the Air Force too, and he recommended it to me. And, and one of the things that they, they, they didn't like say, you know, you should, or you have, they, they weren't overbearing about it. These were just like very gentle recommendations of just like, you're a smart kid, but <laughs> you know, you're just on a bad path right now. This is, this may be a good option for you, something you may want to consider. And so I did. And, and so then, yeah, what did it do for me? I mean, so I guess it did do the things that you would expect, right? So the military did do things like, uh, you know, it taught me discipline. Uh, you know, there was camaraderie, uh, respect for uh, authority, sort of learning to respect authority, um, working as a team, taught me leadership, followership too. I mean, because you, you know, everyone starts out as a follower. You start out like, you know, the, the rank structure is very formal. And so it's literally like you're on the bottom of this uh, totem pole and you work your way up and you sort of accrue the respect through this very formalized hierarchical system. But then, you know, there's this other part of it, too, where I think it's just and, and this is me sort of putting on my psychologist hat, uh, you know, studying developmental psychology, evolutionary psychology. A lot of this is just um, and you may be familiar with this, a lot of your listeners, too, of uh you know, that, that basically the period of a young man's life when they're the most likely to, to cause trouble, both for himself and for others, is around 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, some psychologists refer to this as the young male syndrome. So if you chart a, a man's life, his entire lifespan, the period when he's most likely to get arrested, the period when he's most likely to, you know, try illicit drugs, drink and drive, get into fistfights, um, you know, get involved in anything sort of reckless or dangerous is that sort of late teen, early 20s period. And what the military does is, uh, at least for me, it, you know, it, 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 it takes it takes a young guy out of um, out of situations in which he could do something catastrophically stupid. So one way I put it is that the military doesn't necessarily set you up for success so much as uh, remove the chance for you to do anything that could catastrophically, uh, you know, just like wreck your life. Uh, because the structure is so... Um, I mean, it's so suffocating, like every aspect of your early on, at least early on when you're still in training, every aspect of your existence is tightly controlled, you know, your uniform, your bed, your cleanliness, hygiene, uh, uh, work, like everything, you know, things like if you fail a drug test, they make it, you know, you just you just go to military prison. And the and, and there's random drug tests, uh, you know, there's just everything is inspected and regulated and controlled. And they make clear that if you, you know, if you fail, here's the consequence, you know, immediate penalty, there's no there's no gap between um, there's no gap between, you know, the, the transgression you commit, and then the penalty, it's just like this happens, then this, you know, x, then y, whereas in civilian life, you know, you can be an 18 year old guy, 
and you can drink and drive, you know, you can do that a hundred times before you kill someone, right? Like you can do that a lot. Whereas in the military, right? Like, you know, if you drink and drive and someone catches you or whatever, like it's just very quick that, that you'll get arrested or, um, or do, yeah, yeah. Do, do anything reckless. So, uh, and so that's the other thing is like, it sort of removes the chance for you to do anything. And then even if you do say four years in the military, right? Join when you're 18, you leave when you're 22. Um, even if you didn't learn anything, at least you didn't, you know, have the chance for those four years to do anything stupid. And by then you're a little bit more mature. Your uh, frontal lobes are a little bit more developed. Your hormones are a little bit less, uh, uh, what, like uh, intense, all of these things, right? So you sort of calm down. You know, very few guys are equally impulsive at 22 as they are at 18. And so that was another benefit too. So, you know, I, li I like maturity to think that I learned all Maturity was a big word that I was going to ask you about because mm -hmm. yes, you age during that period, but you do, while you're a follower, you are being asked to take on a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Be on time, be well-presented, behave, like don't 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 go outside these particular remits like be a good example to those around you that is something that a lot of young men benefit from tremendously and if you're mm. doing that on a regular basis for four years for argument's sake 18 to 22 that's going to yeah. compound over that period where you come out and you have some qualities which are going to make you probably more valuable than 22 year olds who maybe run riot during that period yeah 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 i mean so so if you're <laughs> Yeah, if you're especially if you didn't go to college, right, like where which I wasn't going to, if I had spent those years just, you know, back back in in Red Bluff, California with my friends, like I, you know, there's there's very, you know, there's a zero percent chance I would have done anything particularly noteworthy or interesting, like more likely I would have just, you know, done even more reckless things, you know, tried more drugs or, or uh, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. So um, maturity is is a big one. And yeah, so there were lessons that I learned, of course, and the experiences that that helped to to shape, you know, my my personality and my the way that I think about the world, but then also just um, taking me out of the environment I was in and putting me around better people around better peers, and then just allowing me to sort of develop and grow and mature uh, without sort of acting on a lot of the impulses that I felt like just just like anyone else, like any other 18 year old or 19 year old, right, you, st you still feel them. But when you're, you know, when you're free in the civilian world, you, you're free to act on them. Whereas in the military, you're, it's made very clear that if you do anything, you, you know, you, the, the, the penalty will be swift and, and um, ruthless. And so it's better to, to just not act on, on all of these feelings you may be um, experiencing. What was the link then between you leaving the military and getting into Yale? What needed to happen to make that happen? Um. Yeah, what needed it? Well, I was taking night classes. So the final few years that I was in, I was taking night classes sort of on and off. Um, and yeah, by that point, I, you know, as, as my enlistment was winding down, I was starting to take myself and my life more seriously. And yeah, I decided to, uh, yeah, apply. And yeah, it was, it was the long, yeah, the long story short was just, you know, I was, I was sort of Googling how to get into college, you know, just, very basic, you know, keywords and searching. And uh, yeah, I ended up uh, applying to Yale and yeah, got in. I mean, I had to take the SAT. I remember this was, I mean, I was, I was stationed in Germany at this time. Um, and the military, there's an American military base, but the, and they had an American high school and the students at, at the, these um, uh, uh, high schools, these sort of satellite high schools for military members, their families, their kids, 
you know, like, you know, the, 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 the kids of like the, the master sergeants and the generals and stuff, they have teenage students who have to study. So they go to these schools. Um, and of course they have the SAT just like any other high school. So I remember I had to get up and it was, was like 8am and I was, how old, I was like 24 years old. I was just really embarrassed to have to take the SAT to, to go to, to go to school. And I was, or to go to college, you know, it showed up to all these like 16, 17 year old kids. And I just felt so awkward and, you know, it was a, it was in a high school classroom with like that. The, I don't know if you have these in, in Scotland, but in America, we have these desks with a tiny desk attached to the chair. It's like this very tiny, you can barely fit a piece of paper on it. You know what I mean? I had to squeeze into that little thing. And like, it was like, these are smaller than I remember. And uh, it was just so like uncomfortable. And, you know, these students, I don't know, maybe it was my imagination, but I felt like they were staring at me like, who's this old dude like taking this test with us? Um but I took it. I sort of, you know, swallowed my pride, um, got some good good grades in my night classes, did well in the SAT, and then, um, yeah, managed managed to get into Yale. And yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was an experience, man. Just uh, that transition it was rapid transition. I got out of the military, and uh, this was August of 2015, and started class. You know, a couple weeks later in September. What do you notice is the kind of startling distance differences? Sorry, between Yale and the military in your first few weeks. I mean, right away, there's a huge difference because so the age ranges are similar, right? Like you join the military when you're you know, a teenager and you start uh, university when you're a teenager. But one of the biggest differences is that the military is all about teamwork. It's about the group. It's about com- like if one person fails, everyone fails, right? Like in basic training, if one person you know screws up making their bed, everyone gets punished for it, right? And everyone has to do pushups or, or run or whatever, whatever the the, the penalty is. But in in university, right, it's like it's super individualistic, like everyone for themselves, everyone's preoccupied with identity too. in university, you know, you're away from home for the first time, you're trying to experiment, you're, you know, in different social circles trying to figure out who you are. And in the military, your identity is, well, first, it's stripped from you, right? Like you go in, they shave your head, they give you a uniform, you know, you're called by your last day, like everything is just like individuality is stripped and you become this other thing. Here's your new identity. Um, Whereas, yeah, yeah, so so there's a stark contrast too. Is one is your identity is handed to you, and here's the group. The other one is individuality, and you know it's all it's all about your yourself and who you want to be. And I think there's you know there's sort of costs and and benefits to both, right? Pluses and minuses. In some ways, I think you know being an 18 year old and and having uh, your identity handed to you and and learning teamwork and um, putting the group before the self and all those kinds of things. I mean, you learn that in sports too. Uh, there's a lot of benefit in that because young people have a tendency to be self-absorbed anyway. Uh, and in college, it just like, you know, it just sort of pours, pours fuel on this of just like maximum all about yourself. Um, and there's like a, a low grade individual competition among students too to whatever it is, get the best grades, get into the best law school, get the most prestigious internships. Whereas in the military, the, yeah, it's, it's sort of less, sort of individually doggy dog cutthroat i mean i guess like broadly speaking in the military you're competing against other militaries right but at least on the individual level the people you interact with day to day you don't see them as your enemies or your rivals or your competitors whereas in college you know you have your friend group but then you have people you know you gossip about or rumors or backbiting and those kinds of things too that's very very interesting isn't it and it's funny that you say that college is quite individualistic because we're probably going to speak about the political environments at colleges which would probably lend themselves more to being collective if we were to categorize some of their political beliefs um beyond like how they behave day to day yeah yeah i mean that that is i think why 
you know, we, we're seeing a lot of the political correctness stuff on campus and whatever, just because, you know, if you're if you're young, a very good way to, you know, find an identity on campus when you're unsure of who you are. I mean, political movements, you know, a lot of people have made this this comparison, a lot of social commentators about how politics can be like a religion where, you know, if you're you're sort of away from home for the first time, you don't know who you are, you're trying to find your friend group, you're trying to be accepted, you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself, all of these are natural urges. And, you know, here's some here's a political slogan you can rally around. And here's some people you're, um, you know, you're, you're who you are sort of socially sanctioned and validated to dislike and condemn. And that can be really thrilling for young people to like, here's a designated group that you're allowed to dislike. And here's a group of people that you're defending. And all of those things sort of activates this uh, ancient coalitional tribal psychology. Yeah. You mentioned before we went into your kind of military background that you realized quite quickly at Yale that you were one of the few people to come from uh, a single parent family and have the kind of level of disruption in, in your upbringing. How do you start to identify that? Is that just through conversations with peers or just generally looking around and understanding that? Well, one was, uh, well, the first time I, I, I really, this, this, this sort of became clear to me was I was in a class um, my first year in college and there was uh, uh, the professor of this class uh, administered an anonymous poll. So the class was something like, um, it was on like family psychology and she administered this anonymous poll and we responded to it and uh, the professor put up the results on this powerpoint slide just you know anonymized and basically the so the question was how many of you were raised by both of your birth parents and there were 20 some students in this class and out of 20 something students um there were only two that were not raised by both of their birth parents right so that's well over 90 percent raised by both birth parents and that was like, you know, just a very visible, like, you know, here's a tiny bar next to a giant bar. <laughs> like, oh, okay, there's this like a very visually striking difference between, you know, the way that I grew up versus, you know, if I compare, you know, where I, you know, yeah, Yale to, to, to Red Bluff and the foster homes and all that stuff, just so different. And then that led me to, you know, I wasn't like, I hope I wasn't like weird about it, but, you know, I'd be talking to a student and I'd like, you know, get to know them and learn a little bit about their family background and, you know, almost every time. Um, and, you know, there were, it's funny. So there were a few other veteran, like student veterans on campus, uh, people who had also served in the military like me. And you might think that, you know, they may come from sort of more hard scrabble, maybe working lower middle class backgrounds. So maybe they may have different kind of family, single mom, that kind of thing, too. Every single student veteran that I knew, um, not that there were that many, but there were, you know, maybe 15, 20, something like that. Uh, every single one of them were raised by both of their birth parents. Um, I was the only one who wasn't. And so I started to, um, you know, sort of connect these dots. And to me, this indicated that, you know, maybe it's not a coincidence that people who are raised in you know, relatively stable uh, homes where, you know, the family life was predictable, they ended up studying at a place like Yale. And I'm sort of the you know, the anomaly here. And then when I consider the ways that most of my friends' lives turned out, um, and none of, you know, none of us were raised by both of our birth parents. So, you know, you see the way that their lives turned out, and maybe there was something, something going on there, too. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, these, these sort of trends, and then, and then I would look at research, too. Eventually, I, I sort of learned how to, like, you know, carefully read research papers. And I would see that, oh, actually, yeah, at, at a lot of the more selective, prominent universities in the US at least and pro probably in the UK too um yeah students are raised in sort of two parent homes and you know very little in the way of like divorce or single parenthood or addiction or anything like that 
once you start to look at your anecdotal experience and then extrapolate it out through the data, it was bearing fruit that your hypothesis was probably correct that the majority of people that would be attending these schools and having that level of academic achievement were from quote unquote more stable households. Yeah. Yeah. And I think nowadays, even vocalizing that point to particular audiences, people would maybe push back on that and say, oh, that can't be the case. But the the facts don't really care about how people feel about that particular statement, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, it's so funny because if you ask people generally, regardless of their politics or, um, you know, educational background, any of this stuff, if you just ask them, like, what, you know, like for your own children, like, what's the optimal situation? How do you want to raise them in terms of like, you know, like, do you want your children to see you and your spouse get divorced? You know, or or would you rather, you know, sort of stay together if you can make it work somehow, stay together and and raise them that way? Uh, and, you know, or if you're going to like, you know, if something were to happen to you, what kind of home would you want your kid to be raised in? One in which, you know, they're raised by a single parent or with two parents, one in which a divorce will occur at some point that your child will witness or one in which they'll stay together with both of the two parents in the same house until they, until they leave the home. And I think for the most part, people, regardless, again, of politics and class and all that stuff, they would say, yeah, I want my kid to be, you know, if I had the choice, I would, I would want them to be in a, in a stable two parent secure home where, you know, they're not going to a different house every other weekend, or they're not having to go to two or three or four Christmases and Thanksgivings, and trying to appease because oftentimes, I mean, this is something that's not often discussed, but like, you know, divorced parents don't often get along, and they don't like each other. And so you, you know, it's it's very difficult for, you know, the adults, you know, the, uh, the adult children of these kinds of people to like navigate, okay, how am I going to handle Thanksgiving this year? How am I going to handle Christmas? Like, okay, so-and-so can't be with so-and-so because they don't like each other. And, you know, like weddings get weird too. Like, yeah. So I, I've seen this with, um, you know, a friend of mine, you know, he's, he's about to get married and he doesn't like, he doesn't know how to invite his, both his mom and his dad there because he knows they won't get along and they each have a different spouse who don't like, you know, so it's just, it just gets so messy like this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Was this the first time you'd really become interested in things like class and social status, Rob, when you started to dig into this? Yeah, I think it was it was a few months before I started Yale where these questions became interesting to me. Um, I read this book by Paul Fussell called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System, um, which I've referenced in, in various essays that I've written. Um, and, you know, it's it's a sort of a tongue in cheek book. It's kind of humorous, uh, which I think you would have to be because he he does make some pretty biting, some cutting remarks about, uh, you know, every, every class. And uh, so that book sort of pointed out some of the characteristics. And then, yeah, when I got to Yale, it became sort of, you know, it popped out at me, these kinds of things. Um, and I think, it's, you know, in some ways I was doing um, I was interested in it implicitly you know all throughout my childhood you know watching tv shows and movies and sort of seeing the ways that people live their lives differently and you know maybe like we were speaking about before right like maybe i was uh you know being like a little sort of amateur psychologist or something like watching these tv shows and movies and comparing their lives to mine and the people around me and just thinking about what were the differences what are the similarities what are the predictors of success and all of those kinds of things um and then yeah like once i once i entered a more sort of formal um, or my education became more formalized when I, when I went to university and, and to grad school. Um, yeah, I just sort of tried to connect these dots from my personal experiences and observations and my family and my peers. And then what does the actual research say? What did the studies say about, um, you know, childhood poverty and predictability, family life and so on? 
this topic is probably what you're most well known for in terms of your written work where you've written about luxury beliefs when did you start to formulate that and what is that for for the listeners that maybe haven't heard of it before yeah luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes i formulated the luxury beliefs idea well it initially started when I when I arrived at Yale. I noticed uh, just how interesting and peculiar the beliefs were of my peers and of the professors and just the people who had grown up in sort of upper middle class environments in, in America compared to what I was seeing, um, you know, back home. You know, when I talked to my friends, when I talked to my family members, when I would talk to you know guys I knew in the military, and. So, you know, an example of this, you know, we've been talking a little bit about family structure and stuff. So I remember I had this conversation with uh, with this female student at Yale. Um, and now, you know, she went to law school and now she works, you know, she works for a technology company. She's very, she's doing very well. And I remember she told me, you know, that she, you know, I think marriage and monogamy, they're kind of outdated, right? Like these are kind of, um, you know, these are sort of uh, um, archaic patriarchal institutions and it's so funny, you know, we're talking about this. I just read this article, it just came out in the New York Times this morning, uh, saying that um, college college educated people are, are more likely to say marriage is outdated compared to less educated people, despite the fact that they're much more likely to be married. This is the interesting thing is if you look at marriage rates by education, college educated people are much more likely to get married and less likely to get divorced. But yet they also say that marriage is outdated or we should move beyond it and so on. And so and so so, yeah, this and this this uh, this young woman, her attitude was sort of characteristic of this. And then I asked her, well, like, how, how are you, like, uh, what would I ask her? Like, how did you grow up? Because I was curious how she grew up compared to how I grew up. And she was raised by both of her parents, two-parent home. And then I asked her what she planned to do in her own life uh, with her children. And I said, you know, you're going to be a very successful person, but, you know, do you want to have a family? Like, what do you want to do later in your life? She said, yeah, you know, I'll probably get married, settle down, have kids and stuff. And I felt like, okay, so on the one hand, she's saying marriage is outdated. She... Yet she herself benefited from this family structure. She's going to carry on these benefits for her own children. But her public official position is don't do these things, right? Like I benefited from it. I'm going to give my kids this benefit, but no one else should, you know, th th this is my sort of interpretation of it. It's like, but no one else should be doing this thing. That's that's very clearly beneficial. Um, and I saw this, you know, more, more, more recently, I saw it with the defund the police movement. There were all of these you know, people who, you know, journalists and people who, you know, uh, relatively affluent backgrounds, academics and so on. A lot of people were uh, championing this movement of defunding the police. And yet, if you looked at survey data, uh, the people who earned the least, the lowest incomes, the poorest people in America were the most supportive of the police and the least likely to support <laughs> the defund the police movement. And then you could see like, you know, when a lot of the police departments were um, reducing funding. Uh, rich neighborhoods uh, in Chicago, in New York, San Francisco, a lot of these areas were hiring private security guards. They were hiring off-duty cops to patrol their neighborhoods, all this stuff. So it was it, it was very fashionable, right? This luxury police idea conferred status to say like, oh, police, you know, we need to get rid of them. We need to rethink and reimagine how we think about law enforcement. Uh, and then and then privately, you know, they were just, you know, using their um, their economic capital to ensure that they you know, they lived in gated communities. They already live in relatively safe environments anyway. So, you know, there's just all of these peculiar opinions that are at odds with the average person. Right. I mean, this is very much a sort of a status signaling device, I think, that if someone holds a conventional opinion, that it's kind of common sense that you're going to need some police in society for it to function. 
a very uh, uh, simple way to elevate yourself above them is to hold the opposite opinion and do this sort of mental gymnastics required to make it sound like it's a defensible position. The luxury beliefs is fascinating because as you've said, not only does it allow uh, an elite or somebody who's in a affluent or safe position to elevate their status through holding this slightly contrarian or slightly um, unusual position, but it also inflicts a cost on those that actually are impacted by maybe the policy decisions or the the social norms which become the the case off the back of these. So defund the police, for example, the poor are going to be far more impacted by less police on the streets than the affluent who maybe live in safer neighborhoods already who have security. In the same way you were talking about monogamy there, as you said, this lady in particular has actually benefited from the stable family structure to put her where she is. And that's what she is going to practice in reality rather than what she preaches. She's going to do, it's going to be very much a case of do as I say, not as I do for, for, for the, for the people. So like, Oh, you guys are open to have polyamorous relationships and multiple partners or whatever it is you choose to what relationship structure you choose to have. But monogamy will do for me because deep down, maybe she knows that that's what's right for her to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is that um, sort of neglecting uh, how certain practices have benefited themselves and how if we were to implement these these ideas into policy or if we were just broadly sort of promote them in the culture and share them regularly and how this will sort of shape and inform people's views, then yeah, that, that other people will bear disproportionately large costs. And I mean, this is, you know, a lot of, you know, so people will, will say to me that, um, well, how do you know that these luxury beliefs are actually affecting culture and society and so on? But I mean, this is just a very basic principle of social psychology is that we look to high status people for how we should behave in life. Um, you know, the, the, the people that humans are most likely to imitate, and this starts in childhood, uh, you know, there's interesting studies indicating that, you know, young children are much more likely to imitate the head teacher uh, compared to uh, a, a teacher of the same gender and age who is not the, the head teacher, right? So they're looking at the highest status person in their little community and more likely to, to say the same words as them or to try to wear the same colors and adopt their views and so on. And so we look to high status. And so, so if you look at, um, you know, like who gets to determine how you know, how uh, how people behave just with disproportionate influence in the culture and society. Um, usually, people who are you know relatively highly educated, who earn a lot of money, who get to you know do things like um, you know do do things that are that work in sort of creative fields, make movies, make music, make TV shows, uh, you know, write for a living, uh, you know, podcasts, like all these kinds of things. You have to be pretty well off to be able to make money doing these kinds of things and to make a living from it. But the vast majority of people, right? Like that's just, yeah, that's, but, but they, but they consume this content, you know, over time and it does sort of indirectly shape how people uh, behave. And so, and yeah, and advertising too is another one. So, so anyway, um, all this is to say that, look, like people should be careful with, uh, you know, the views that they propagate because, you know, the, this over time can have knock on effects for less fortunate, you know, more disadvantaged people. And, I guess one, one thing that I wanted to clarify, so with, with the luxury beliefs idea, there's like the, the way that it came about was, um, you know, I was reading a lot about, um, about like old school sociology and economics and, and biology too. And so in the past, people would uh, display their social status with luxury goods, with what they would wear. 
uh, Thorsten Veblen, he was the sociologist in the 19th century, wrote this book called The Theory of the Leisure Class. And that book was all about how, you know, the rich people of his time in 1899, they, you know, wear tuxedos and evening gowns and top hats and monocles. And it was very apparent if you walked, if you walked through London or New York City 100 years ago, you would instantly be able to tell just from the way people are dressed and how they look, who's rich and who's poor. Whereas today, um, material goods are noisier signals of social status of one's position in society. It's not always clear, right, just by the way people are dressed uh, and what they're wearing and how they move and the sort of material goods that they have. You know, you can't always tell, right, like who's rich and who's poor. So the way that people demonstrate their, their position in society now is often through their luxury beliefs, holding these peculiar ideas and opinions uh, that are at odds with, with conventional thoughts. So a hundred years ago, you know, if a poor or a working, you know, a working person wore this, you know, a good way to signal your status is to not wear those things. Today, if a poor working middle-class person believes X, a good way to show that you're not one of them is to believe Y. Yeah. It's fascinating. You bring up the possessions or material goods element of things and i've heard you speak about this before and write about this before where because these goods are more accessible than ever before so for example maybe certain technology certain clothes it's much harder for somebody to signal wealth because a lot of people still have access to that particular thing whether they're earning relatively low or relatively high they can probably have an iphone or a samsung galaxy or they can have a pair of night trainers or uh yeah. whatever branded t-shirt is, is yeah. available exactly exactly that so it's become relatively easy to look relatively the same from that perspective and there's particular items of course people can show like it's an element of a, a luxury it's a step up but it's far easier nowadays as you've demonstrated that you maybe hold like a slightly contrarian position where you're in a, a, a strong enough luxury enough position to hold this belief that is a little bit more damaging to people below you yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't always think that it's, um, it's, it's not necessarily a conscious, you know, it's not a conscious intent of like, oh, let me hold this belief because it's going to hurt someone. I think a lot of it is just um, a lot of it is unconscious. It's implicit. It's just, um, you know, where if you say something and you uh, receive status for it, if you receive validation for it, if you say defund the police and you get 50 likes on whatever social media platform, you're just going to keep doing that, right? It's it's almost like basic sort of operating conditioning of just like, you know, you want to do the thing that brings you positive reinforcement and validation. And, you know, this is, you know, this is another sort of piece of the luxury beliefs idea is that uh, humans care a lot about status. Um, you know, there's interesting research indicating that sociometric status is a stronger predictor of happiness than socioeconomic status. And sociometric status is essentially respect and admiration from your peers. Uh, and, th and to be fair, you know, this research is done in um, developed countries, you know, relatively, you know, affluent countries in which, um, you know, you're, you're probably very unlikely to like starve to death in the street or something like that. So in these kinds of, you know, the US, UK, places like this, being uh, respected and admired actually feels better than, um, you know, accruing, accruing a ton of money. Um, and then... Uh, just on that Rob some people yeah. um, I saw some research that indicated some people would rather an increase in title within their organization than increase mm -hmm. in salary so for example um, I got promoted in October from um, business development manager to account director with that came a salary increase but some mm -hmm. people if you offered them the improved title or the salary increase and the same title they would take the improved title because of how that would boost their social status within the eyes of their peers which I find remarkable but yeah. it bears fruit
Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great point. I mean, I've seen this. I've seen this with with professors and academics too. I knew uh, uh, an instructor at Yale. She was a non tenured instructor, and she was offered a tenure track job. So the dream of every academic is to get a tenure track job because then you you know means you know you know whatever. you can never get fired. You have a reliable paycheck for the rest of your life. She was on this non tenured uh, contract at Yale. Uh, and she was offered a tenure track job somewhere in the Midwest, somewhere, I think, in like, you know, Oklahoma or something, you know, like a not not a not as prestigious of a university, but she would have been tenured. She would have had guaranteed employment for life and would have had the dream of whatever every Ph.D. student. Right. Um, and she declined it. She would rather be untenured and have relatively low job security, but be able to say that she worked at Yale than to work at, I don't know, whatever it was, Oklahoma State or something. Uh, and so it's interesting, right? She's, she wasn't even, yeah, she would have gotten paid more too, you know, the, the, the job offered her a higher earnings, job security and so on, but it's, you know, that sort of prestigious title. So yeah, that's, I mean, and so it's a good point. And, and this connects to, um, to this other component of luxury beliefs, which is that the people who care the most about status are the people who already have it. There's this, um, basically, there's this sort of the more you the more you have, the more you want phenomenon, where there have been two studies done on this so far, two very, very done, uh, well done studies indicating that, you know, if you measure people's status through how much money they earn, how much education they have, occupational prestige, all of these kinds of things, um, job titles. And then you ask them questions like, you know, how much do you agree with these statements? Like, you know, it would, it, you know, it would please me to have a position of power. Um, you know, it, it, I, I feel satisfied when people do what I say. I like when people admire me, all these kinds of questions. How much do you agree with these? The people who have the most status are the ones who uh, crave status the most. Uh, and they're most likely to agree with those kinds of statements, which is kind of, um, you know, to me, at least at first, it was a little bit counterintuitive because you might think that it's the people who are at the bottom of society who would crave status the most, right? Like the person who is just sort of barely getting by, doesn't have a fancy job title, who's just trying to make ends meet. They're the ones who are sort of dreaming about, you know, having power and influence and status and so on. But it's that's not the case. It's the people who have it already, who really want it more, who, you know. And so this is a, this is a sort of um, a pitfall of status is that because it's... Um, it's not like money, right? Like it's this immaterial thing that lives in the minds of other people. Uh, there's always this sort of precarity about it, this uncertainty of like, do I really have as much status? You know, where's money? It's like you can look at your bank balance or whatever and say like, oh, there's my, there's how much money I have. Good. With status, you can't really know for certain what it's what it's like. Although nowadays things may be changing, right? Where with uh, follower counts, I notice like a lot of people. There's this interesting thing now. Um, I haven't really explored this idea in depth anywhere else, but this is just this idea of like followers as a quantification of status and it's more acceptable right like if i were to just like tweet a screenshot of my uh you know my bank balance or how my portfolio is doing or something there's something crass about it or something like oh like this is kind of like tacky but if i were to like take a screenshot and highlight my follower count like i think that's that's kind of i think some people may think it's tacky but i think it's much more acceptable right particularly if you hit a milestone you celebrate it and people celebrate that too so <laughs> imagine so doing I, that for money right <laughs> like hey million bucks in the bank everyone yeah that's a really good point i i do think there's an element of luxury beliefs around people not talking about money so much as well so one of my friends mm. um richard dixon he's been on the podcast he's a young entrepreneur came from nothing became a millionaire at 25 he talks about the working class sometimes being berated for having an obsession with money and he said that most mm. of the time when he was growing up the vast majority of problems and fights that he saw amongst his friends, his families, his peer group were income related problems. So yeah. if there was more money available to move them to a particular level, that would be 
vital. And when I had a guest called Daniel Crosby on the show, who is a behavioral uh, finance analyst, he was sharing that when you hit £75,000 per year income, that's when you kind of hit like peak happiness from the amount of money that you have. And anything after that is kind of a like a diminishing point of diminishing returns. But the vast majority of working class people are nowhere near that 75. So for them to want more money, it probably will alleviate some of their problems when it comes to shelter, food, bills, anything that would come up. And I do think from a an elite perspective, there's an almost belittling of working class people sometimes having a bit of a fixation around they want to earn more money, they want to have more access to resources. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that both in the US and, and here in the UK, where sort of overtly discussing money is is frowned upon. Uh, whereas in the working class, like it, it is a topic of, you know, constant uh, uh, discussion, Right. Because like if, if you're just sort of barely getting by and, you know, it's something that's on the top of your mind, like how much money do I have? Do I have enough? Like, you know, when, when's the next payday? When's my next paycheck coming in? When's rent due? When are these bills need to be paid? Like, what can I defer till next week? Um, whereas, yeah, like uh, when you when you have enough of it and I'm sort of experiencing this, you know, as, as I've sort of gotten older and become a little bit more successful, realizing that like it's just a completely different feeling to not have to worry about money. It's just uh, it's it's liberating in a way that you know when I was a kid it was just something that that I, yeah, it, it's just a different it's just a different existence. Um, yeah, so so it's interesting you brought up the point. Uh, was it Crosby who who made up the, the or brought up the point about seventy five k? There was yep. there was a study that just came out last week about that question about money and happiness on that specific study too. So Daniel Kahneman, the guy who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He was an author on that original paper. It came out, I think, about 10 years ago about how uh, beyond 75K a year, people sort of, um, uh, the, the happiness doesn't increase much more after that. Um, well, so he recently, so Kahneman uh, teamed up with some some other researchers and the latest, so, so and they reanalyzed some of the data and using more sort of sophisticated um, uh, statistical techniques and so on. But basically what they found is that there is uh, there is actually uh, a sort of a linear relationship between income and money for for most people. Actually, beyond seventy five, if you keep making more money after that, most people will actually keep getting happier. But there is um, a relatively unhappy twenty percent of the population who are just sort of chronically unhappy. This bottom twenty percent, and for them, they do keep getting happier uh, until they hit seventy five k, and then it sort of levels off. Where there's this sort of ceiling for them, this sort of unhappy crew. You give them more money, they get a little bit more happy, then they hit 75k, and then it levels off. But for about 80% of the population, actually, more money going. does. It keeps it keeps going. It's kind of it's kind of a sad thing, right? Like, because I I believe it's it's a neat like the original idea was neat. Like, you know, beyond that point, we need you know, it's not all about buddies. I, I think yeah, maybe, maybe uh, yeah, maybe it's yeah. This this new finding I think to me makes a, a bit more sense that maybe there is a crew out, you know, like a, a small subsection of the population where money doesn't really seem to do much more. Uh, but for most people, I think, um, yeah, it, it just it just makes sense, right? Because if you ask people who say they make, I don't know, $100,000 a year, if you say, hey, we're going to give you another $100,000 a year, are they going to say, well, there was this study that said I'm not going to get much more happy. So I'm, yeah, are they going to decline that money? I, don't, you know, I think it makes the intuition. The, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of the the lower level increase in happiness comes from more work that's required to do that whereas if you were gifted an extra hundred thousand i think your happiness would be exponential because think of what you could free up and again one of my recent guests damien talks money he's a finance youtuber really cool british guy and he was saying that 
a lot of the time, the additional capital that you're gaining at this stage, if you spend on experiences rather than goods, you tend to see even higher levels of happiness because it's more mm-hmm. it's more memorable. So I was talking to him about if for argument's sake, I get a £15,000 increase in salary. Great, great stuff. But if I use that to maybe get another car where I pay an extra couple hundred pounds a month for, or if I use that to go on a holiday that I'll always remember at the age of 30, I went to this particular holiday, or I took my mum to London for these three theatre shows and we dined at these three restaurants, I'll remember that rather than, yeah, my car was was a three-litre engine rather than a two-litre engine for the ages of 30 to 33. Like that's mm. much more memorable that that money that I got was used more uh, valuably potentially for the longer term. Yeah, I think the other thing is, uh, like with with goods, you know, re- regardless, like, you know, if they're, if they're luxury goods or any kind of like, they, they sort of depreciate over time, right? Like, even if you get a really nice car, five years later, it's just not as exciting to drive it. Whereas memories kind of they, they tend to appreciate they sort of increase in value, even if they're like, even if you take a, a holiday, and it's it's terrible, you know, like, whatever, it's raining, and the food is miserable, and whatever, you know, you just uh, the hotel overcharges you and all this stuff. I think after a few years, it just becomes a funny story. And it's something you can reminisce with your friends or with whoever, you know, your girl, whoever you're traveling with. Um, the, the story just becomes, you know, it's, it's this kind of funny experience, uh, even if in the moment it was unpleasant. Uh, whereas, yeah, like material goods, you just sort of take them for granted. They're not as interesting after after a while. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the experience is, yeah, there's just, um, I think there is something to that, that spending money on experiences rather than, rather than goods, right? Like, you know, this there's this whole, area of, of research and happiness studies uh, that Kahneman and others have been involved in. And, you know, he makes Daniel Kahneman makes this distinction between the experiencing self and the remembering self, uh, which you, you're probably familiar with, right? And that people actually seem to be optimizing more for the remembering self than the experiencing self, right? Like we do place some value on sort of immediate hedonic short-term gratification, right? Like, you know, you eat a piece of chocolate cake or something, fine. But what people really seem to value are those sort of ex- remembering self experiences of doing something hard, of running a marathon or, you know, uh, 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 you know launching some kind of a big project and successfully accomplishing uh, the, the goal that you'd set out. Those are the things that people really seem to value uh, even more. Agreed, agreed. Um, one of the luxury beliefs I was really keen to ask you about was when it comes to education, because mm. I, I read today that there's talk about getting rid of SAT testing for poor kids. Um, mm. But when that happens, it doesn't seem to actually help them. It's more a case of making the elites feel good that they're trying to make the playing field more equal, but it doesn't transpire that way in terms of results. And I know that's a big part of luxury beliefs where the intended consequences down the line aren't quite as they expected. Some of the kind of second, third, fourth order effects are not quite uh, as ideal. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I strongly disagree with the idea that people should, uh, or that universities should, should eliminate standardized testing. I think it's, it's a huge mistake. I mean, I mean, just like very simply, like, you know, regardless of whatever politics concerns and so on, like, why would you, intentionally reduce the amount of information you have about a person, right? Like if you're a job, uh, if you're an employer, why, why would you like, uh, like, you know, evaluate a candidate with one arm tied behind your back? Like, why would you want to remove potentially useful information about someone? Uh, and, you know, of course, like what could be, you know, you know, ob- obviously like test taking ability is going to be relevant for an institution of higher learning, like how well, you know, because the SAT just tests like your sort of basic reading, writing and math skills. 
those things might <laughs> might be relevant for how well a student's going to do in a university. So it's just a, it's just a, a flooring me that they would even consider this but yeah a lot of columbia university one of the first you know the first ivy league universities doing this a lot of other places have done this or experimenting with it it's a luxury belief because yes people who are implementing it get to pat themselves on the back and feel good but if you think about you know the the that the variety of experiences of of teenagers you know poor working class teenagers various situations you know, I wrote I wrote about this recently, and um, and it's being republished uh, tomorrow in the free press. Um, you know, suppose that you're a poor teenager in a dysfunctional environment, and you know you, your parents are absent or checked out, or you're growing up in foster homes, you're just in a situation where there's not a lot of adult oversight, and you have younger siblings that you have to take care of. You're working a part time job to make ends meet, and you have all of these demands for your time, and so you just um, you just don't have the ability to devote resources to, you know, doing all of your homework, dotting every I, crossing every T, following up and doing all these, you know, high school projects and so on. But you can set a couple of hours aside in an afternoon and take the SAT. And if you receive an outstanding score, that's going to open a lot of doors for you that weren't open before when you weren't able to get top marks in every single class. And those are the students that will you know, basically be weeded out of the selection process for universities. And, you know, to me, like it connects a bit to my own life. I mean, I, I didn't really understand my own academic potential until I took a standardized test to join the military. Uh, so we take the ASVAB, it's the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. And it's just a, basically a standardized test, test a lot of the same things that the SAT tests for basic reading, writing and math skills. Um, and you can actually convert ASVAB scores into SAT scores. And, you know, I discovered that, you know, I, I had really high ASVAB scores and I could have gone to college uh, if I had, you know, first of all, I had taken the SAT. I didn't even take it. I didn't even sign up for it. I was just, you know, just uh, you know, that sort of that, that much of a, you know, just unserious student. And so those, yeah. And, and then who gets to benefit from this? So the the university admissions committees are going to start placing greater importance on other aspects of the application, things like personal statements. Uh, and these essays, you know, you write a, like a 500 or 650 word essay, you know, tell us why you're applying to this university, or they'll give you some kind of prompt. Well, there was a study out of Stanford, um, came out, I think, a year and a half ago, which basically found that you know, they, they did like a linguistic analysis, right? Like they looked for uh, like patterns in vocabulary and uses, uses of language in, you know, thousands and thousands of these essays and correlated it with family income. And they found that the correlation between family income and essays is actually higher than the correlation between family income and SATs. And to me, the reason is, is probably most likely that if you, uh, you know, if you come from a relatively affluent background and you have, uh, you know, educated parents, you have all of these people who can help you to tutor you into writing an essay that will sort of shape, uh, shape it to be pleasing to admissions committees using the right buzzwords. I mean, you know, famously, this was a few years ago, there was a student um, who applied to Stanford. In his personal statement, he wrote, uh, you know, I think he, he was a, an Asian student who applied, Asian American student who applied for Stanford. Um, and he just wrote Black Lives Matter like 400 times on his essay. <laughs> That's all he did. Um, sorry, it's so ridiculous. And he got in. He got into Stanford doing this. 
um there's no like working class student like that wouldn't even enter their mind to like it, first of all it's kind of risky to do and they wouldn't want to play like, that risk. level of political game yeah yeah exactly if you're That's from like, the right background yeah. you would know that it's going to push the right buttons with the right level of um yeah like political alignment yeah it's yes, funny exactly I, and and he yeah and and yeah working class student wouldn't want to take that risk they wouldn't understand that that's the political game you have to you know all that kind of stuff right um and so yeah it, it, so there yeah, there's the essays there's the recommendation letters this is the other element they're going to place more importance on recommendation letters if you're a, a student from a rich background you just have your parents are going to have connections to well-known prominent people senators ceos whoever some other famous professor so yeah all of these um all these factors will take on more importance and low income students are going to going to suffer for it. The SAT was like a good way to find, you know, like a diamond in the rough of a kid who maybe doesn't have the best grades, didn't come from the best environment, but it's a clear metric of like, oh, he scores in the whatever, the 95th percentile. He scored better than 95% of the people who took this test. So despite these other things, despite his recommendation, all this stuff isn't that great. Um, clearly there's potential and, you know, now they're not going to have that information. One of our mutual connections, Chris Williamson, shared your analysis on it um, in his three-minute Monday newsletter today, and it summarized with smart kids from poorer backgrounds who can raise themselves up with genuine talent and a good result in the SAT are now more disadvantaged than ever. And if that's not a luxury belief in a nutshell, then I don't know what is because it's it's all well and good to say, oh, we're being virtuous and supportive by removing this big, bad, scary test. But actually, the big, bad, scary test is providing us with data and information that will allow people to have genuine social mobility, which is what ultimately we're we're trying to create here. And the real problem is social mobility and the access of war class or financially disadvantaged students getting into these schools. And you're you're pulling the, the ladder up from from a high um, to, to stop them getting there. Yeah, all of the arguments against testing is just ridiculous. There was this scandal a few years ago. It was called the, the it became known in the media as the Varsity Blue scandal. And basically, all of these rich people and celebrities were paying professional test takers to take the SAT for their kids. Uh, so they had, you know, they had these, the, their children were applying to play at places like Yale, USC, all these, you know, Stanford. And they're, they're you know, rich, dimwitted children couldn't do well on the SAT. So they would hire professional test takers with like, a, I don't know how they did it with a fake ID with a fake thumbprint. I don't know how they did it. But they got in, got them to take these. And then yeah, they ended up these schools and all these people they ended up getting busted for it. Um, but the thing is, like, the people who say, Oh, these tests, they're actually just measuring, you know, how much money your family has, or it's measuring privilege, it's not an accurate indicator of someone's ability. It's just, you know, money and class and bias and all this stuff. If that's the case, then why did these people in the varsity blue scandal have to pay test takers uh, for, for their kids, right? I think the whole thing is just the whole argument is misguided. Yeah, you mentioned the word privilege there. And, and the last luxury belief that I'd love to ask you about with the time we've got, Rob, is, is around white privilege, because it seems that a lot of luxury beliefs are particularly fixated on race rather than class, which hmm. if anyone's learned anything from this discussion, they'll have learned that class and family background and support network is one of the most vital indicators of what happens for access to college and, and, and down the line. Yeah. Yeah. The white privilege idea was a confusing one. I'd never heard this term in my life until, until I got to college until I, I mean, it's funny, like the only time I ever heard white privilege was when I was around uh, privileged whites. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in a, in like a, you know, well in the foster homes I grew up in, in LA, it was like most of my um, siblings were black and Hispanic, some white kids and then in Red Bluff, it was like a heavily working class, blue collar, white and Hispanic area. 
and so so my you know my my mother uh she was uh she's uh korean and like i said before i, th- I think i mentioned this i never met my father i took a 23 in me my father i'd never know i knew no- nothing about him you know a couple of lines in a document from a social worker saying that my mom didn't even know who he was because she was just on drugs and just um this 23 and me revealed that i'm 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 mexican i'm half mexican my my dad um yeah the ancestry from from spain and mexico uh like indigenous like it was like you know half half indigenous uh from north america and then the other half was uh, from spain so he was just yeah mexican guy um so yeah the white privilege idea was just it's just bizarre because um you know there's there are a lot, a lot of poor white people in america uh, you know, it's, it's actually, if you look at just the low, low income people, uh, they make up the largest percentage of, of low income people in America. And so when people talk about white privilege, like to me, they're mostly talking about wealth privilege. It's a weird thing because it's a sort of a narrow minded parochial view of what privilege is, because it is true that in elite institutions in America, um, the people with the most money and the most influence do tend to be white, but that doesn't mean that all white people have privilege. So the whole term is confused. And when you implement um, policies to what combat white privilege, you're not going to be uh, uh, undermining uh, you know white people who graduate from you know elite Ivy League universities or people who come from rich families. You're going to be uh, uh, hobbling the like poor white people who are trying to get a leg up in the world. Those are the people who are going to be harmed if you you know launch a scholarship that excludes white people or what have you. Like you know the the, the white Yale graduate is not going to be like oh no I can't apply for this. It's going to be poor white people who who actually need scholarships who are going to need you know who are who um, are going to be disadvantaged by that. So. Yeah, it's uh, it it makes no- and then when you look at the actual like you know who's obtaining the most success, the most education, the highest earnings, and so on, um, in America, uh, for a lot of these metrics, Asian Americans are actually outperforming white people, um, and so and, you know how, if if we live in a in a society that you know privileges white people above everyone else, how is it possible that, um you know, these non-white people are outperforming them on, on tests, on, on educational markers, on um, occupational prestige, all of these kinds of things. So yeah, white privilege is it, to me, it's not really real. There may be sort of wealth privilege, but not white privilege. One of your most famous articles is titled The Dark Side of Virtue Signaling. And I think that is absolutely the the dark side of it, where some of the attempts to be virtuous and and kind of shame a particular group in terms of, and particularly a group that they are a part of in terms of, oh, I need to check my own white privilege. But ultimately, Mm. it's having downstream effects on people who are disadvantaged regardless of their color or their creed. And And I find that something that we've not focused on in terms of discussions in, 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 in wider policy discourse for a very, very long time now, both in the UK and, and in the US. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just a, a, a lot of, a lot of people who, you know, pay a lot of attention to politics and talk, you know, would like to voice their opinions. They're just, um, yeah, they, they have this very sort of parochial view, like they're operating with blinkers on where they're not thinking about, you know, the, the world beyond their immediate social environment, uh, you know, they look around and think like, oh, well, the people in executive positions or the top positions tend to be white or they tend to be male or they tend to be this or they tend to be that. And they're not looking at the bottom of society because they have they have no contact with it. Like, you know, they, they don't know what it would be like to, to, to grow up poor, to grow up in a dysfunctional, deprived environment and 
how you know how a lot of people live and it's just uh i, I mean it, it, it's it's kind of interesting because like the people who hold luxury beliefs the people who wield the most influence in society who sort of get to shape the culture and sort of shape the direction of what people are, are thinking about and talking about they have the least contact with ordinary people and how they live and what their concerns are it's um it's detachment from reality and like you we talk about woke and anti-woke but i i quite often talk about based and debased because i think hmm. if you become debased from the reality of normal people and some of the language that they use and some of the problems that they encounter then of course in your i don't want to say ivory tower because a lot of the people having these conversations aren't even in ivory towers they're just slightly above the above the average and they're able to to kind of, to get, kind of look down and, and, and then almost talk about these problems that they don't quite have a quite have a, a full grasp on and language is another thing but that'll be a, a a full other podcast we could go into on 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 that rob when it comes to some of the language yeah. that i've heard like I, I was telling you before we hit record that i studied politics at the university of glasgow and now i finished in 2014 so that was quite a long time ago but as i was leaving some of the language was really creeping in where i felt it was almost exclusionary on purpose for us to have debates so i would have conversations and if you use the wrong term around say homelessness or drug addiction or race you could be not like deplatformed, but you'd be struck down in terms of oh no like you cannot we cannot have a serious conversation with you because you aren't using the correct terminology that is accepted within this argument now that's fine within the structure of an academic essay in terms of right you must use the correct terminology but equally it's becoming exclusionary for discussion so you don't ever get to tackle the actual problems because we're too busy dancing around using the correct terminology yeah, it's a lot of that is a signaling game to show that you're sort of up to date on the latest information. It shows that you're informed, that you're educated and all these things. But to the people who who actually are um, homeless or addicted to drugs, like they, they're not going to care what a bunch of, you know, college students, like what terms they're using. You know, just like in, in the U.S. at least there's this movement to change homeless to unhoused. But if you actually you know, if you, if you, you know, find a homeless person on the on the sidewalk and say, hey, guess what? I got news for you. You're not homeless anymore. You're unhoused. Is he going to say, oh, great. Like you have a new name for me. Perfect. Now my life is so much better. No, like how do we actually solve homelessness? It's not going to be by starting to call them unhoused. And I mean, if you hang out with drug addicts too, I mean, I, I have friends who've, who've been in drugs and, you know, been to rehab and all this stuff. Like they, they use the, a lot of the terms that, that a lot of like university students and graduates would, would be horrified by, like calling someone a junkie, right? Like they call themselves junkies. Like this is like, that's just like life on the street. That's life at the bottom. Like that's just how people communicate is this very blunt, unornamented language. And yeah, there's just not that sort of concern around around signaling and being informed and all those things. Um, a lot of it is just very unhelpful for the problems that I, I think and hope that a lot of people are trying to solve. I think so too. And rather than maybe softening the blow with the language that you, we use to describe these people that are in these problems, let's turn our attention and our energy to deciding how we can actually raise people up and give them access to the the help and support they need to to become more empowered but but rob as i said we could we could have another whole other podcast and, and go off on more luxury beliefs and and more language and i'm sure we'll get the opportunity to do again in the future but if people want to continue the conversation with you which i'm sure they will where should they head towards uh you should go to my Substack, robkhenderson.substack.com just google me rob k henderson and yeah i'm on twitter as well at rob k henderson Rob, that'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you very much to you, the listener, for joining me. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.